0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So those of you who are regular listeners to this show know that I have been on the Today Show for about 23 years, which is a really long time. It's so long that – I regularly have this out-of-body experience where people come up to me on the street or in the grocery store or, sadly, in some communal dressing room and say things like, oh, my God, I grew up with you. And it's always somebody who's considerably younger than me, makes me feel a little old, makes me feel good that they've been watching all this time, but I realized when I sat down or thought about doing this interview that that is exactly what I want to say to my guest, because (laughs) I think we all feel like we grew up with Winnie Cooper. And Winnie Cooper's not here, but Danica McKellar is. And we all know her so well from her wonderful role on The Wonder Years, but also The West Wing. She's been on a number of different shows, so many different Hallmark movies. But she left Hollywood for a period of years and went to school and became a math genius and has written a number of books that are focused on helping our kids, kids of a variety of ages, embrace math. And she's got two new ones out. One of them is sitting right in front of me. It's called Do Not Open This Math Book. I love that title. <laughs> thank Danica, you. welcome. Thank you for coming into the studio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You have
2: been making the rounds today. You must be tired. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? But I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunities to get the word out about my books and to help more kids in the process. So it's my pleasure. Tell
1: us a little bit about how you went from Winnie Cooper to math genius. I mean, you are a math genius. Danica has a math theorem, and anybody who sort of went through advanced math in high school will remember theorems, like the Pythagorean theorem is probably the most common. She actually has a theorem with her name on it, the, and I know I'm probably not going to pronounce this right, but it's the Shays, is it Shays? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shays mckellar Wynn theorem So you are a certifiable math genius?
2: <laughs> well I do I don't know I, I do not consider myself to be a math genius. I just really love math and decided to focus on it for four years in college and get a degree and help to figure out this answer to this theorem. Um, we proved the new theorem and, and uh, that was really it was exciting for me because I remember when I was in the ninth grade in geometry, I, I said to my teacher one day I, it would be so cool if I had a theorem named after me. And it, it, that was one of those little things I get to uh, check off the bucket list. <laughs> I,
1: I think so. I never had that on my bucket list, but I think it's I think it's wonderful to check off anything that you've made a goal. These
2: days you're also a mom. You've got a seven-year-old. You know, I didn't actually get a chance to answer your question. That's true. Because um, you interrupt yourself to talk about what a genius I am, which is not how I see myself, but thank you. Uh, how I went from Winnie Cooper to mathematician is... Quite literally, the wonder years ended within months of me graduating from high school, and I went to UCLA uh, with the idea of being a film major, but I took a math class. Now, speaking as a woman, and many of us have felt discouraged about math, feeling like it's we're not really going to be good at it, and certainly women are encouraged to go into math and science. It's all around, right? And now. yet women—for a while, for a while. When I was at UCLA— I did I did this original research and you work under a stipend when you do that. You actually get paid to do mathematics. And it was easy to get the money because I was a woman, because I was female. So there's, there's tons of encouragement and that was that was that was in the late 90s. So that's not been the issue. The issue is that even though we're encouraged on the one hand, on the other hand, the images that we are seeing and the messages that we get as women tell us that our value Really, the most important stuff is our appearance and our sex appeal and whatever else. What a good, how good of a selfie we can take. <laughs> that is the that's the message that we get, and the message that we get still from Hollywood is that if you're really good at math and science, you're probably a geek. And not in a good way, not in the the fun nerd culture that we have today, but in the antisocial, awkward, or you've got you know mental disabilities, or you're just slightly crazy. I mean, think about it, a Beautiful Mind, even The Big Bang Theory, which is a very funny show, and I was even on an episode of that. But it perpetuates stereotypes, and getting these stereotypes, it gets in even if if someone's telling you on the one hand you're gonna you can do anything you want to do, but then all the evidence you're seeing around you is that yeah, but. It, doesn't that mean that I'm going to be, you know, not not cool and not popular because those kinds of people are good at math, not me. You, on the one hand, don't really want to be associated with that group. And I, on the other hand, you don't think you can be a member of that group anyway because that's not really what you're going to be good at. Just Is that where math phobia comes from?
1: And there has been this partially. long-standing belief that women are more fearful around numbers. And right. that I did some research on math phobia years ago and, and learned that it does have a, a code in the psychological journals. Like, it's a real thing. It's not something that's mm-hmm. made up. There are people... Math phobia? Math phobia. There <laughs> are people who get an, math anxiety, right? There are people who get oh, anxious sure. around yeah. math and around numbers. But that... Long ago it came from one teacher saying to a student, a girl, you're don't worry, you don't have to be good at this or you're not good at this or or some something that became self-perpetuating.
2: Yes, in part, in part um part of it is is definitely cultural. So here's my theory about why women in general are considered to be not as smart as men. Have you – do you have you have any kids or – Yeah, I have two okay. kids. So anyone who's listening, any of the women who are listening who have been pregnant, you know that when you're pregnant, your body is reprioritizing and your brain gets a little foggy. You're not going to be the best problem solver at that moment in time. And then you have the baby and now you're up at night breastfeeding, which is an amazing, wonderful, precious thing, but you're not getting sleep. Right. You're not getting sleep and then your brain is super foggy again. Back in the day – women spent most of their young adulthood being either pregnant or having just had a baby. If you spent most of your 20s and 30s having babies, you would not be dependent on in that family to be the problem solver, to be really good for much logic. Why? Your body is prioritizing these babies, and that's super important and a really important, vital job and role to be playing. However, it is not the role of problem solver or sharp-wittedness or anything else. So we do have the the stereotype of the wise older woman right mm-hmm. but mostly women were having babies and that means your brain is not your own you don't have your faculties so if that was how women before birth control if we just had a lot of that going on of course they're going to there's going to be a stereotype of course because it was true right and now those those stereotypes they're outdated but they still but live they on still... that. Is the, that's what's being perpetuated. I don't believe it was a math teacher once saying one thing to a student. It was way, be- way before then. This has been going on for a long, long time. And yet, we
1: live in this society today where a lot of people feel boys are being left behind, that there's been so much emphasis put on girls. And so I wonder why
2: the stereotype is still with us. Because old habits die hard. Because if you talk to our moms and our grandmothers, a lot of them, their experience was that, yeah, the teachers, first of all, you have the generations of women who did not have sharp brains at their disposal because they were pregnant and having babies. Then you have the next generation or two where professors are going to say, well, we don't expect you to be good at math, and that's really okay. You don't need to be. And we don't expect you to be because usually the the girls haven't been that smart in college or whatever. You're not going to go into that type of job when you become an adult, so you don't need to worry about it. Um, These kind of stereotypes perpetuate like that. And even when you're being told you can do anything you want, having these beliefs around you and Mm -hmm. in our history, in our recent history, it gets in. It just gets in. I was told by everyone imaginable that I could do anything I wanted. I could be whoever I wanted. When I got to college and I was going to be a film major and I considered taking a math class, I was afraid of it. I didn't think I would do well at college math. And there was no good explanation. There's no reason why I shouldn't have been good at math except that I didn't look the part. I didn't perceive myself to be the kind of person who would be good at math because I didn't fit the stereotype in my own mind, despite all best efforts.
1: Follow the breadcrumbs with me now for a second. We go from a culture believing women are not good at math to a generation of women who are underconfident when it comes to managing our own money. Yeah, well, they're underconfident in math. So when I look at the kind of math that's required to do money well, Mm -hmm. it is not algebra. It's not geometry. It is certainly not calculus or anything advanced. It is
2: addition, subtraction, percentages, and fractions. Percents and fractions are enough. Trust me. That's middle school math. That's when it starts to get a little more complicated. That's when girls start wondering what other people think of them. This is why I wrote my first book, Math Doesn't Suck for middle school girls because that's when fractions and decimals are really i mean they might introduce them sooner but that's when they're really converting fractions into percents and and really having to understand what's going on adding fractions together multiplying fractions and percents together that is when math starts to get get confusing in middle school that's when girls start becoming self-conscious and wanting to fit in that's when the hormones are shifting a really important time. And that's why I wrote that book for that age. I mean, look, when I wrote my first book, I didn't know there were going to be more books. I just wanted to create a resource for middle school girls to help get them over that hump. So that's why I focused on that. It's a very critical time.
1: Danica, I want to hear more about all of that, but before we do, let me just remind everyone that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We are working together to encourage all women, all girls, to be in the front seat when it comes to our financial health. Why? Because women are in the driver's seat in so many aspects of our lives managing careers, managing families, and yet, When it comes to making decisions about money, too many of us delegate to someone else. One thing is really clear. When it comes to investing, you always want to be in the front seat by knowing what you own and what you owe and what your goals are and having an annual financial checkup. And you can learn more about all of that at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are talking with Danica McKellar, who many of you remember fondly as Winnie Cooper on The Wonder Years. She's written a series of books aimed at getting kids and their parents to embrace math, which is just such an important thing when we're talking about embracing money. What do you think we need to do as women who want to bring along the next generation of women who are confident With money. I mean, we are going to have all the money, or if not all the money, most of the money. We already have most of the purchasing power. And yet when it comes to handling things like our investments, many of us are taking a backseat.
2: How do we get past that? Well, I say when kids are afraid of math, they become adults who avoid numbers and that's just true it starts when you're a kid and when i what i say to moms who didn't do well in math or are afraid of math don't tell your kids especially not your daughters but don't tell your kids that if you have to lie lie <laughs> <laughs> if, if if and if and if they want help with homework and you're not able to do it in the background go get some books and or go online and find some help but in the meantime Simply tell them it's not how you learned it, but let's get you some help because you can totally do this.
1: There is a lot of difference in how math was taught when we learned it and how math is taught today. I love that in the back of your book you have a cheat sheet for parents who don't understand all of the changes that came along with Common Core. (laughs) So
2: this book, Do Not Open This Math Book, the one that came out this week, is addition and subtraction for ages 6 through 8 or 6 through 9, and it deals with this new math. They're teaching addition and subtraction and multiplication and division, for that matter, in ways that are more complicated and more visual than we learn them. What it's doing is it's teaching the nuts and bolts of what's really going on when you, you know, carry the one or borrow uh, from the next column over, which, by the way, they've changed those names, too. That's that's regrouping. Regrouping and ungrouping. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I – but then after the kids learn that, then they're taught the way that we learned it. So I have all that in this book. For parents who just need a cheat sheet themselves. Uh, You don't open this math book is for kids and parents. So kids uh, who are good readers uh, between the ages of six and eight can totally do it on their own. Um, I actually, I recommend that parents do it with kids because it's just fun. There are a lot of cartoons. There are comics in there. There's a Mr. Mouse character who's afraid of math. And then there's the Danica cartoon. And the two of them have this really fun dialogue throughout the book that just lightens the mood and makes it accessible and makes it silly and fun. And I love the idea of parents and our kids sitting together and having fun with math because when your six or seven-year-old brings home math homework that you don't recognize, that's just a recipe for disaster, especially if the parent has uh, any insecurities in math. They're going to be like, wait a minute, I thought I wasn't going to have any trouble until al- algebra, <laughs> right? Why can't I help my seven-year-old? So I'm, 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 my aim is to solve that. What are you doing to teach your seven-year-old about money? Um, well, he figures out the tip at restaurants. Um, he, when he wants to buy something, like buy an app or buy some like addition for his game, then he has to, you know, he pays me for that. And and so we kind of have this little, you know, I mean, it's like a couple bucks. Um, he gets money is, um, sometimes for birthday or whatever, Christmas, he'll get a little something. So we have a little piggy bank in the shape of R2-D2. Because all piggy banks should be in the shape yes. of R2-D2. And so he's very aware of, of money.
1: And how about you? I mean, you came into money very young because you were working. I don't know if your parents put it in your hands or not. But what was your financial evolution like? Do you feel like you you had a wake-up call about money along the way?
2: I've always been a saver, always. So, and I still, to this day, if, I, if I'm if i making extra movies one year, I have a separate account that I just put money into and then I pretend that it's not there. You ever play Monopoly? Yeah. (laughs) You know when you hide Monopoly money? That's called cheating. My very, no, no, you hide it from yourself. (laughs) Oh, okay. I used to to hide (laughs) Monopoly money from myself so I wouldn't realize how much I had so that I would have that cushion. (laughs) It's just just the way I do it. (laughs) So in life, I have a separate account where I just, and I don't ever take money out of that account. I just put money there. When if I have extra, like, you know, oh, I've got, like, I just, I made more this year than I normally do. I'm putting some away. And that way, I just have that feeling of security. I think... <laughs> I mean, it's no, not very it, scientific, but...
1: No, it's, it's funny because I'm listening to you and I do much the same thing. Oh, okay. If I have a year or a month where there's mm-hmm. more, I just put it away, figuring that I'll need it someday and right. and it, maybe the work won't be there at that point in right. time.
2: And if I make less, I don't take from it. I just scale back. So that's, you know... That's my method. And that's a
1: method that would work for pretty much everybody. Danica cool. McKellar, the book is Do Not Open This Math Book. The other book that came out today is called Bath Time Math Time. Mm-hmm. It's for little
2: kids. Little kids. That that book is helping kids go from counting to adding. So if your little kid knows how to count, or even if they don't, I mean, you can still start them on this. But the idea of 1 plus plus, you know, one plus 3 is going to be the next number after 3 if you are counting. So that's how you know it's four. So and it's a very sweet book. It's got these big colorful tabs on it. Beautiful illustrations. Really beautiful illustrations. She did such a great job, Alicia Padron. And um I'm really proud of it. It's adorable. And I by the way, I have books from babyhood through High school geometry. And if you go to McKellerMath.com, you'll you'll see all of them there. And there's a big slider button so that depending on your child's age, you can slide the button across and see which books are best for them. I'm on a mission to make sure that kids never remember a time when they were intimidated by numbers. I love that. So they always associate math and numbers, starting with Goodnight Numbers, which is my the first book I wrote for Little Ones and Bath Time Math Time, that they associate it with sweet togetherness with their parents, cuddle time. You know, do not open this math book. I've got these fun comics and cartoons in it. So they associate that with fun and silliness. Then my books for middle school and high school, which is those are really aimed towards girls like Math Doesn't Suck and Kiss My Math. Those books really show how... Being good at math sharpens your brain and makes you more fabulous. I have examples of women who have jobs that use math you might not ever realize used math, and they're they're fabulous. You know, meteorologists or whatever it is that that seem like a fun, glamorous job. You know, she's on TV and look at her dress, and she uses math every day. So I have tons of examples in in my books for that kind of thing too. Well, we love. All of this. We've got a couple of copies of this to give away. Thank oh, you very wonderful. much. Oh,
1: yes. Um, Yes. And we're thrilled to have you. Thank you for coming into the studio. Thank you.
2: And I'll see you on Twitter. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly's
1: with me in the studio. Kelly Hultgren, our producer. So I was remembering as I sat down to talk to Danica that I got a math award my senior year in high school. You did? I did. I got the outstanding math student in my high school senior year. You know what? I might have received that for my freshman year. Yeah, I loved math. Me too. I loved it up until calculus. I loved it through calculus. Mm, no.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but then I went to college and and I signed up for calculus. I figured I actually figured I would take it again in college, and it would be easy for me. And the professor spoke to the board. I could not understand a word that he said. And it was really demoralizing and so
0: sad because I thought I could do something with Mm -hmm. that. Oh, I can so relate to that. Not necessarily with math, but I went into college thinking I was going to be a nutritionist, and I took chemistry. And quickly learned that I was not going to be a nutritionist. I know. Yeah.
1: I know. A lot of wake-up calls when we get into a college classroom, and it's so different from a high school classroom, even when our high schools have prepped us Mm -hmm. to be able to do this or think that we would be able to do this. But, you know, everybody knows I became an English
0: major. So there we go. And Dottie goes, why don't you just try the journalism course? I'm telling you, you might like it. And mom always knows best. That's right. <laughs> yep. That's right. Okay. Um, anyway, what do we have? Questions. First, we have one from Anne. Do you recommend taking out life insurance on a newborn or child? My husband thinks of it as protection in case of an unfortunate event, where we would need to pay funeral costs, etc. However, I see it as years of paying into something that likely would not come to fruition, especially for a child that would not be bringing in income that would be lost following such an event. I see this money being better spent, put into a 529 or savings account, where We would see a return on the money regardless. What do you recommend? I'm with you. Yes. Yeah.
1: I'm with you 100%. So when we think about life insurance and who needs it, we think about income insurance. That's what life insurance basically is. You are protecting an income stream for dependents. So you need life insurance when you have a child. Your spouse needs life insurance when you have a child. You might need life insurance if you are responsible for an older parent, if they're depending on your income. But little kids do not need life insurance. And it makes me angry when companies try to sell it. Oh, is that a thing? Oh, it's a thing. Ugh. It's a thing. It's, it's predatory. You, you have a baby. It's one of those things they prey on people who are way too hormonal to make these good decisions. I mean, Ugh, you know. I it's get that. It's, well, and Danica was talking a lot about it. You have this bundle in your arms and you think, I want to do anything I can to protect that child. But Anne is absolutely right. That money is so much better off in a 529. Put it, put it away for college, and protect that
0: child from student loan debt. And you are on the right track. Now one from Jessica. My retirement from a former employer was recently moved to Penchecks Trust. I am currently a stay-at-home mom with no income. That will change this fall. The amount is less than 5000 What do you recommend I do with this money? Should I cash it out and pay off credit card debt or roll it into an IRA? I would roll it into an IRA, probably, and work
1: – outside the account to pay off credit card debt. And the reason that I would do it this way is that when you pull money out of a retirement account before you are of retirement age, you're looking at taxes and penalties. And those can eat into your return to the tune of 30 to 40 cents on the dollar, which means you'd have a lot less money coming out of that account than is actually in that account. Roll it into an IRA, allow it to continue to grow, and look at the credit card debt that you're carrying and figure out what you can do about that on a separate track. Maybe it involves transferring your balance to a 0% card so that you can get out of debt faster or Looking at your spending over the course of a month or so and seeing where you could come up with some additional
0: money to just throw against your debt and get rid of it. Great. Well, we'll do one more from Janelle. Hi, ladies. I've been listening to the podcast for a long time now, and I love it. I'm a partner at a CPA firm in the Chicago area, and I have been asked to present in a financial wellness for women series on the topic: How do I find a financial advisor who is a good fit for me? Woohoo! I know. The group has chosen a non-financial advisor to present, so that the women get an outside perspective on various types of advisors. I wanted to reach out to you for any suggestions or advice you may have in researching and presenting on this topic. Love this.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, All right. Uh, You're going to have to keep me reined in because I have so many opinions on this topic. All right. First of all. I think I think this is great. I love financial wellness. I love that people are thinking about it in this way. And I love that they've decided to put this in your court and let you run with it. So here's what I would say. When you're looking for a financial advisor, you're looking for a few important things. You're looking for somebody who understands your financial life, who understands what you're talking about when it comes to the amount of risk that you want to take. And for that reason, I often find that it's helpful to ask your colleagues for recommendations on how to get started. If your colleagues have people that they work with and their financial life is similar to yours, their pension plan, their retirement plan, their stock options, whatever they've got going, if this financial advisor already gets that, that is just a leg up. Also, figure out what model this financial advisor works under. So financial advisors get paid in a lot of different ways. Some charge a percentage of assets under management. Some charge a fee for a plan. Some, if you're in a retirement plan, you can just pick up the phone and call, and there may not be an additional cost. But you want to know, before you are adding a person to your financial life, what's this relationship going to cost me? year over year. And then you get in a room with these people. And there should maybe be three or four of them. And you sit down. And this is the most important. Make sure they're listening to you as much, if not more, than they're talking to you. If a primary interaction with a financial advisor is all one-sided in that they're telling you all of the wonderful things that they can do for you, That means they are not listening to you. And this is about you. It's about your goals. It's about your wishes. It's about your dreams and your fears and your responsibilities. And they need to get that. And the only way that they're going to get that is that if they start asking you questions and listening to what you have to say. And finally, make sure you are really comfortable in this interaction. you got to be able to open up to this person. If you're not, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you, and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It just means it's not a good fit, and so you just move on. Great. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. And thanks, Janelle, for the great, great question. Good luck with this presentation. Let us know how it goes. In today's Thrive segment, gone are the days where your age and income and financial obligations and employment status and debt are the only ways to measure creditworthiness. This was a surprise to me. But according to a study from Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, Your email address, the type of device you're using, the time of day that you browse the internet could all be used in determining your opportunities to get more credit. When combined with existing FICO data, the study's authors say this information could improve lenders' ability to predict the rates of defaults on loan. According to this study, the digital footprint that you leave is the trace information that you leave behind when you go about your day-to-day online tasks, like buying something or buying five things or where you browse. When customers leave behind information like their email address and how they came to the website and what device they use to make the purchase, those variables can be used to indicate a person's likelihood of repayment. And get this, Android phone users are twice as likely to default as those who use Apple devices. And those who have their name in their email addresses are 30% less likely to default than others. That makes sense to me. Also, those using a Hotmail address, I don't know anybody who uses a Hotmail address anymore, but they're more likely to default than others while those with other email addresses are even more likely. So does this mean that you got to go out and buy an iPhone right now or come up with a new email address and switch everything? No. But it does mean that you're going to want to keep your eye out for future news. Although using our digital footprints is an effective tool for lenders, they aren't using it yet as a sole measurement tool. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Danica McKellar for a terrific conversation. It was so much fun to meet you. Everybody was excited about that one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We like to hear what you think. We want to know what you want in future shows, so let us know that, too. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with another great guest. We'll talk soon.